Second Thessalonians chapter two, beginning in verse four, where we left off. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In the second chapter of the letter, the reader is given a sneak peek into the into the future, a future which will come. Now, you can imagine that there are three broad camps concerning this particular passage. The three broad camps are there is one group of people who believe that all of the things that we've just read have already happened. There's another camp of group of people who believe that some of it has happened and some of it is yet to come. And then there is a third group of people who believe that by and large, these things that we're talking about have yet to take place. The Bible refers to this as the day of Christ or the day of the Lord. The day of Jacob's sorrow, the day of of great tribulation, as a matter of fact, over and over again, it's called the day of the Lord in Isaiah 2:12, Isaiah 13:6, Ezekiel 13:5, Joel chapter one, Amos chapter five, Obadiah chapter uh, one, verse five, Zephaniah chapter one. It's called the day of the Lord, the great and terrible the day of the Lord in Malachi four five. The day of trouble, the time of trouble, the day of Jacob's sorrow in, in Daniel 12, 1 and Zephaniah 1, 15. The day of the birth pangs, the day of calamity, the day of indignation, the day of strange work, the day of overlo- overflowing scourge, the day of vengeance, the day of wrath, the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of distress, the day of destruction, the day of desolation, the day of darkness and gloom, the day of clouds and thick darkness, the day of trumpet and alarm, the day of the Lord's anger. The day of destruction, ruin of the Almighty, the fire of his jealousy. Now, I'm going to ask you a question after reading all of those things. What would, what do you, what's your overall opinion of how the Lord characterizes that day? Yes. The purpose of this day is the punishment of the Gentile nations 
and the purification of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, which by this time has returned and been reunited to the land, but they're in the land in a state of unbelief. So what will this time look like? I'm going to suggest to you that I believe, based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I believe that this involves a rapture of the church, the appearance of an antichrist who will rise to world domination and dictatorship, and that it will begin as a powerful, peaceful movement, but then it will end in calamity. I believe that there's going to be a seven-year covenant that will be signed in order to ensure the safety and security of the nation Israel. That according to Daniel chapter 9. And after a three and a half year period, the Antichrist will break that agreement and will invade Israel. And it is my belief that he will abolish all religion. And that he will set himself up as the supreme object of worship and adoration that according to Revelation chapter 13 and here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and at the end of the seven year period called the day of the Lord Jesus Christ will return literally bodily physically and that he will destroy the Antichrist and his system of government now facts unfold as we're given a glimpse of this mysterious man. He's called the man of sin. And remember what I already told you, that that's a description of his character. He's also called the son of perdition, which is a description of his destiny. When he's called the son of perdition, it means he is the one who is doomed. He's the one who is the doomed one. There's no hope. There's no escape. And so he has claims. And this is where the Christ and the Antichrist at least have one thing in common. Both the Christ and the Antichrist claim to be God in the flesh. Paul hints of a temple that must now be rebuilt in verses 4 and 5. A restrainer must be removed. The day of the Lord must take place for both the Jew and the Gentile nations. That according to verses 13 through 17, which we'll talk more about the next time that we meet. But in verse four, look what it says. The day of the Lord and the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing that he is God. And so the Antichrist, according to this description opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worshipped. And some Bible teachers suggest that this means that the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, will initially, quietly, peacefully oppose religion. And then he will progressively and more violently and more perniciously begin to oppose any and every veneration and worship that doesn't include him. He opposes the true Christ and then he sets himself up as Christ. 
He enthrones himself, according to this, in the temple of God, claiming to be God. Is this a literal temple? Does this temple have to be built in Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount? We're going to talk more about that. As a matter of fact, what I want you to do just very briefly, and we're going to go over this a couple of times, is look at verses 8 and 9, and then we're going to come back to it. Because it's a description of this lawless one. And in verse 8 it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, and will destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. As a matter of fact, a well-known Bible teacher on the radio here locally suggests that the Jews will never accept Yeshua or Jesus as the Messiah apart from signs and wonders. And I was thinking as I was listening to him how that worked out the first time when Jesus appeared on the scene, who performed more miracles than him? Who performed more interesting miracles than him? Multiplying the loaves, multiplying the fishes. How, who, what other person opened blind eyes and deaf ears? What other person cured disease and brought the dead back to life? What other person has died and come back to life? And I'm going to ask you a question. Was that pretty convincing to the religious leaders of his day? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 24, 24, it says, For false Christ." And false prophets will arise and give great signs and wonders for the purpose of deception, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But you know what? For some, a, super man, a supernatural manifestation is the do-all, be-all, end-all explanation, and it's the end of the argument. People pray to Satan, or they pray to Lilith, or they pray to Larry King. They pray to whatever god or goddess that they choose. Some people might gather into a prayer circle and pray to Oprah. The fact that something supernatural happens, is that a confirmation that Larry King or Oprah is some sort of divine being? Does the presence of a miracle mean the absence of God or the presence of God? Here's what we know. Jesus had supernatural power. But we also know that Satan has power. And Satan will be able to use that power for the purpose of deception. To draw people away from the truth of God's glorious gospel. To draw them away from the true Jesus in the Bible. To draw them away from the message of the, of the gospel. People expect Satan to look like a goat with horns and a pitchfork. And that he's going to be wearing some sort of 80's outfit that looks very much like the caricature of evil. But Paul makes it abundantly clear that he comes as an angel of light. That according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. The caricature of Satan entrenched in history and made popular by the media goes against Paul's words. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen says false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And also in 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen it says... Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. The place to look for the false apostles 
and false ministers probably isn't going to be the History Channel or the Science Channel or Nat Geo. Beware, most of the deception is going to come from Christian TV. And Christian radio. We don't expect necessarily to find the deceit there. But the Bible teaches that it is the so-called Christian who's going to invite you to believe something that is simply not true. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But look what it says in verse 5. The day of the Lord and the restrainer. It says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. Now, clearly, he's writing to the Thessalonians. And the only thing that we remember, of course, is what he's written to us in the first epistle of Thessalonians. And those of you who have been following along in our Bible study and who have um, gone over those teachings, you at least have a clue of what we're talking about. But again, clearly, we don't know what Paul told them. The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't specifically say, oh, by the way, and these are the things. However, if we ask and answer the question, what did Paul tell them? I'm going to suggest something to you. Whatever it was, it was supposed to be something to tell them about the persecutions and the sorrow and the trial and the pain and the trouble that they were experiencing, that that trial, that pain, that sorrow, that trouble was sufficient to get them to have a sort of Christian amnesia. They forgot what he said. And I understand. And the reason why I understand is because of the wacky and kooky world of prophecy. My friend Dave Reagan tells the story of a radio listener who said that her pastor preached a whole sermon based on a rumor. And the rumor, believe it or not, was that the building blocks of the next Jewish temple have been cut and numbered and are being stored right at this very moment in Kmart's all over the country. See, you're laughing because even as I say it, you know, you have this picture of someone waiting to get the call, to receive the shipment, to get the stones to Jerusalem. Bizarre rumors, false claims among prophecy buffs make this subject one of the most difficult of all to preach. And it's simply because there's so many prophecy teachers and prophecy teaching that are a pitiful playground of the, well, creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They're all together. The end time family. You know, you sit here and you just want to say something that's going to be real and true and substantive. And so we're left with what Paul actually says in verse six, when he says, and now, you know, what is restraining? And if you're like me, you should say, wait a minute, we don't know. I know you told them, but we want to know. Look what it says. And now, you know, what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Apparently, Paul told them what was restraining. 
I need to just do a little tiny history lesson for you. When Paul wrote these words, Caligula had recently been removed from power. He was assassinated. After Tiberius in the ministry of Jesus, Tiberius died on the island of Capri and his wicked, selfish, detached, megalomaniac, psychosocial nephew comes to power. His name is Caligula. And he is arguably one of the most wicked human beings who has ever lived. As a matter of fact, he married some girls, which isn't such a bad thing. Then he married some boys, which I think is probably a bad thing. And then he married his own horse. And see, I know you're thinking, uh, okay, you know, clearly this is a person where all prohibitions and all restraints are, are left out. Caligula, during the height of his reign, sends an army to march on Jerusalem where he is going to post his image in the sanctuary of the temple. This is exactly the thing that Antiochus Epiphanes IV had done some 200 years earlier when Antiochus Epiphanes, part of the member of the Greek Empire, marched into temple, desecrated it, presented himself as the true and the living God, which was called the blasphemy or the abomination of indignation such that it precipitated the Maccabean revolt. Caligula is killed and his uncle Claudius assumes the throne. He purchases it at his own expense. And when Paul is writing these words, he is the emperor. There were those, even at that time, who believed that Caligula would be revived from the dead and he would seek to establish himself as the true and living deity in the temple of God. And by the way, the word restraining both here and in the following texts is the Greek verb kateko. The word means to hold back, to detain, to hinder. The word in the present participle indicates it's a, a continuous action in verse 6. But the form is neuter in verse 7. The verse is masculine, which has created a firestorm of controversy among Bible teachers. Art and Gingrich correctly give the meaning as that which restrains in verse 6. And then he who restrains in verse 7 or what prevents the adversary of God from coming out in the open opposition for the time being. And I think that that's the point of the passage. These Greek scholars point out the ancient church fathers and even some present day interpreters take verse six to mean the Roman Empire and verse seven to mean the emperor in the Roman Empire. Theodore of Mopsuestia referred to verse six as the preaching of Christian missionaries and verse seven to the Apostle Paul. Chrysostom mentions the restrainer as the Holy Spirit. Well, does the passage mean that the Holy Spirit in the church is restraining lawlessness in this age and that when he leaves this world in the rapture of the saints, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Because whatever this restrainer is, it's something that keeps full-blown wickedness and evil from manifesting itself on this planet. I want to caution you about something. 
we know that there are things, simple things that restrain evil, like police and like government. How many of you, when you are speeding, when you see the police officer in your rearview mirror say, forget you, I'm going to, and you step on it. Or how many of you go, I think I'm going to drive the speed limit at this point. Some of you who have a, you don't have a conscience, they become your conscience. And some of you, when you were little kids, you said, I can't wait till I grow up so I can do whatever I want. I am going to take my money and buy pistachio ice cream. I'm loading the refrigerator up and at midnight I'm walking in and I'm eating whatever I want. And there's nobody who's going to stop me. I know, but it's probably not you. And then I grew up. And other things restrained me, like a wife. Did you know that the Spanish word for handcuffs is esposas? Only Spanish people will get the joke. Part of the challenge is this. Whatever this is. It has the supernatural power to restrain wickedness in every single heart. In other words, if you're honest with yourself, some of you think some pretty wicked and evil and perverse things. Can you imagine if the thing that was shown on, on, on the wall was not the lyrics to the worship, but the imaginations of your mind. How would worship go on any given Sunday? You see, the truth is we are wicked both by nature and by choice. So what is this? Augustine, who was way smarter than me, wrote, and I quote, I admit the meaning of this escapes me. And you know what? This creates in me a specific statement that dogmatic statements at this point are ill-advised. But clearly, I think that there's compelling reasons to believe that it is the Holy Spirit in the church that retards the corruption and the wickedness that is on this planet Earth. By the way, some Bible teachers have suggested that it is Satan himself who's holding his place in the heavenlies in Revelation 12, 9, until he be taken out of the way. But it's hard for me to imagine Satan, even in some sort of personal abstentia from the Earth, restraining evil. That doesn't make any sense to me. And the reason why I believe that the Holy Spirit in the church, in the body of Christ, makes a very good case is, again, Matthew 5.13, where we're called the salt of the earth, delaying the decaying influences in a world in which, which has rejected God. And when the church is taken out of the way, the Spirit's ministry through the church no longer functions to restrain evil or lawlessness or the manifestation of the Antichrist. And in verse 7, there's a clue that I think is given that I want you to follow. It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only 
He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. How are we to think about this? In order for us to understand the mystery of lawlessness, I'm going to introduce a different idea to you, and that is the mystery of godliness, which is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there, because in 1 Timothy, again, in 2 Thessalonians, all you have to do is turn the page, and you'll come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In just a few pages in verse 16, where Timothy, where Paul writing to Timothy says, and without controversy, this is not controversial. This isn't a thing where there's two or three or four or five hundred different positions. In first Timothy, chapter three, verse 16, he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up to glory. You know what the mystery of godliness is? The mystery of godliness includes the fact that the true and living God intervened in human history in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord. It's God who was manifested in the flesh. Now, why is this important to you? Because the, Paul writes, he's justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And the truth is, the moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you believe the truth about the message of hope. You believe that you could experience love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. A supernatural, internal, invisible thing happened inside of your heart. This is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is that God saved you in Jesus Christ. Really? You weren't persuaded by some emotional concoction or philosophical persuasion, but a powerful internal inward working of the Holy Spirit pressing and wooing and persuading, saying the Bible is true and Jesus is Lord. And the wickedness and the guilt and the pain that you've experienced can be, can be totally changed by the person of Jesus Christ. The mystery of godliness, in part, is that Jesus Christ can change you and save you. How do you explain that? And in a very real sense... The mystery of iniquity, the mystery of lawlessness, which is at work. Think carefully now. It's invisible and internal. The mystery of iniquity and the mystery of lawlessness isn't that you do wicked things. The mystery is why don't you do every wicked thing that your heart imagines? Why don't you do every wicked thing that your wicked mind can fathom? It's because there's restraints. The restraint might be the government. The restraint might be your mother. The restraint might be your conscience. The restraint might be the revelation that's given 
by God in the Bible, the restraint could be any kind of restraint. But make no mistake about it. The mystery of lawlessness is being hindered even at this very moment because you don't do everything wickedly that you want to do. But this becomes part of the course of culture. And that is that you push the envelope of rebellion and wickedness just a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further until the prohibitions and the restraints become a situation where you're talking to a person and this person is saying to you, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then one morning in shock and surprise, the person who's making that statement is you. You look in the mirror and you say, I'm going to do what I want. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. It's hindered. It's restrained. But the world is ripe, don't you think? The world is ripe for a superman. The world is ripe for a person who will come on the scene and give the answers to climate control and food fatigue, who will eradicate poverty and who will bring about a utopic circumstance on a planet that is committed to denying and rebelling against God. And then in verse eight, look what it says, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And if you look at verse 8, the space in the text between the revelation and then the lawless one will be revealed. And then the consummation of the Antichrist in our language is punctuated by a comma. It's almost as if he never really came. But we know that that's not true because we've read ahead to verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. But we don't want to fall into a horrible trap. And the horrible trap I think that Paul gives us, even in verse 8, is to not become so preoccupied with the Antichrist, we lose sight of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling us what we need to know. He is the man of sin. He is the son of perdition. He is the one who exalts himself and pretends like he's God, when in fact he's not. But he will be consumed with the breath of his mouth. And be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Do you think this is sort of like theological Listerine where Jesus has unholy breath that he's accomplished over 2000 years and that he breathes on the Antichrist and he just simply shrivels up and dies? I don't think so. I don't think that that's the point. The Lord will consume him with the breath of his mouth. And with the brightness of his coming. Do you know what it's saying? The Lord will slay him. And the breath of his mouth is the spirit of truth. It's the spirit of holiness. It's the spirit of unlimited power. What Paul is pointing out is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. The same God who's mentioned in the opening chapter of Genesis says, let there be light. And there was light. Is not going to have a difficult time with the Antichrist. Some people think that this is sort of like. A battle between good and evil where equal and opposite forces have to wage war and an eternal struggle. But it's not going to be like that at all. It's not even going to be, going to be as close as Pee Wee Herman versus 
I don't know, pick, take your pick. Michael Tyson, I'm going to have to destroy you. Yeah, can you imagine Michael Tyson saying to Pee Wee Herman, hey, love the movies and all that, but I'm going to have to quipple you. It's not even going to be close. It says with the brightness, it's, a, it's such a powerful word. It's, 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 it's the word, it's the Greek word epiphaneo. It is it's splendor and radiance and glory. In order for you to understand when it says destroy with the brightness of his coming, that there, words escape me. But let me try to give you just a picture. The picture would be, I want you to imagine our sun going supernova. When the sun goes supernova, it consumes all of the planets in the interior of our solar system. It swallows the planet Earth and then it consumes the planets all the way past Venus. Because the supernova of the sun isn't an adequate explanation. I want you to imagine every star in every solar system in our galaxy blowing up. And then I want you to imagine every star in every solar system, in every galaxy, in every galaxy in the universe blowing up. And then all of a sudden you have a tiny, tiny, minuscule understanding of the power and the majesty of the coming of the true and living Christ. That's what he's talking about. The Antichrist will be allowed to conduct a reign of terror that's described in verses 9 through 12. And it's correct that the Antichrist, I believe, is revealed after the rapture of the church. He's allowed to conduct a campaign of first peace and then terror. But he's going to be destroyed. And the talk on Fox News and CNN... And ABC and NBC and CBS will be, who is like him? Who can withstand him? The question in everybody's mind on this side of the universe is, who is he? And I'm going to suggest to you something that might shock you and startle you. But I'm going to suggest to you that in every generation, there is a wicked person wholly given over to Satan who wickedly determines in his heart that he will be prepared to be that person. And it began with Caligula and it continued with Claudius. It was revealed in Nero. And after Nero died, there was a struggle in the Roman Empire between Otho and Galba and Vitellius and then Vespasian. He goes to the temple. He destroys the temple. The Jews are scattered throughout the Mediterranean. And in every generation, there have been wicked people who resist the plan of God and the power of God. And he's taken different names, Napoleon and Hitler and all kinds of different people. But there will come a person, a real person prepared to be supernaturally possessed by Satan himself. And he will have the consciousness and the wickedness 
and the sum and the substance of the consciousness and this wicked antagonist who has been antagonistic towards God since the beginning. He will be totally surrendered. He will be completely energized by Satan. And in verse 10 it says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Who are the people who perish? All the unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. How do you receive the love of the truth? Remember what Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. They didn't receive the truth, the truth that God loves you. He doesn't hate you. He's not trying to kill you. He's trying to save you. Because the power that works, the iniquity and the wickedness inside of your heart has to be expunged. And the only person who can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the people who don't love the truth. They reject the truth. Look what it says. They reject the truth that they might be saved because if they accepted the truth and received the truth, they would be saved. Who's the person who's not saved? The person who hates and rejects the truth. Charles Spurgeon wrote. The besetting sin of the unconverted is to deny their guiltiness, to plead that they are as good as others, and to indulge still the vain and foolish hope that they shall enter into heaven from some doing, some suffering, some weeping of their own. It was Spurgeon's way of saying the besetting sin of the unconverted is to deny their, their, their guiltiness. I'm not really that bad. As a matter of fact, I'm better than most. I'm as good as most. And they indulge in the vain and foolish hope that they'll enter into heaven because of some doing. I've done things. I've given to the church. I've I've helped the poor. I've done this. I've done that. Or I've suffered. I've been diagnosed with cancer. My wife has been diagnosed with cancer. My child died of a childhood disease. There's some suffering. There's some weeping. There's some tragedy. And the belief is, what more should I have to do? How much more should I have to suffer? What kind of grief should I have to go through before I'm acceptable to God? But it isn't your grief. And it isn't your weeping and it isn't your suffering and it isn't any of those things that may ensure that you have a right relationship with God. It's because you love the truth. My friend David Reagan was on a radio program not too long ago and he had written several books, great books, and the radio host had read some of those books And when David Reagan started explaining about this time, this terrible time, this time of judgment, this time of wrath, the radio host started yelling and screaming at him and he hung up on him. It's not who my God is. My God doesn't hurt people. My God doesn't judge people. My God isn't a God of wrath. He didn't even give David a time to explain 
He never even gave him an opportunity to explain that part of the point of this message and part of the point of the message that's given in this particular passage of Scripture is so that the saved and the believer will be sufficiently motivated to live their lives in the reality that Jesus is coming, but also for the wicked and the unbeliever, for the unbeliever who is now bearing the wrath of God upon themselves will flee the wrath to come. But it's not just simply running away, but it's running into the precious arms of Jesus. It's running into the arms of Jesus so that your sin will be forgiven, so that your heart will be washed and cleansed, so that you'll receive forgiveness and hope. That's the point. And in verse 11, it says, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Some have read this verse, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, somehow impugning that God is not righteous or that God is not holy or that God is not just. But look what it says. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The implication is there will come a time when God will allow the unbeliever to believe exactly what they want to believe. I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't need to believe the Bible and I don't need to believe Jesus and I don't need to accept Jesus. I don't need any of that stuff. By the way, the language is strong. Energia, energy, it's translated working in verse 9, is already at work. It's the operative power. This is distinct from dunamis, which is a potential power. It's used only of superhuman power, divine power. This is only supernatural power that is listed in the Bible as coming either from God or Satan or demons or angels. This is a power that's coming from a supernatural source. And the second word is plane. It's the same word that was an object to describe the planets in the heaven because the ancients would watch the planets circling in the sky above. And when one would wander, when the star would wander, they would use that term. And that's where our term planet comes from. And so the two words together mean error or the power of error. Art and Gingrich, the Greek scholars, take the second noun as a descriptive genitive and translate the whole thing, a deluding influence. There's a book out, it's called The God Delusion by Dawkins. Another person wrote a book called The Dawkins Delusion. Delusion is a popular word in our culture and our society right now. The Dawkins, Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, says Christians are deluded. That you have made up a fiction in your heart and in your mind to accommodate a mythical explanation in order to provide comfort for yourself. Whatever else the word delusion means, whatever else it means, it means a person 
who is absolutely convinced of the conviction of the rightness of their position and they are sincerely convicted that their position is correct and they're wrong. The ultimate lie then that they should believe the lie and by the way in the original language it's not a lie it is the lie. This isn't just simply being wrong about something in particular. It isn't wrong about the number of planets in the universe. It's not it's not being wrong about a, a, a wrong consideration of what is pi. It's not the the consideration of something that can be objectified. The obvious answer is this is the lie that the man of sin, the son of perdition, presents that he is in fact God in the flesh, that he is in fact the promised Messiah. The ultimate lie is the claim that the man of sin makes concerning his identity and his relationship to the world. In other words, this is a person who comes on the scene who says, I can make all of your dreams come true. What would you say to a person who says, I offer the world an unlimited energy source? I offer the world peace, no war, no problems. I offer the world unlimited food supplies. I offer the world the answer to global warming. I offer the world peace, prosperity, the absence of antagonism. And the only thing that you have to do is worship me. Bow down to me. Jesus warned them, I came in my father's name. And you received me not. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. John 543. And so the world believes and receives the lawless one, the son of perdition, who comes in his own name and demands love and demands loyalty and demands worship. You know, in Ezekiel 14:4, the prophet hundreds of years earlier wrote, Therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols. You may not even know what that means. I'm going to give you the short version. I will judge you according to the light that you've received. If you come with your heart filled with idolatry and iniquity and you say, I want to be a person who knows and loves God, but I want to retain all of my wickedness and all of my idolatry, all that I love and all that loves me. I'm not willing to give that up. Then God will judge you. Will the Antichrist be Jewish? Clearly, the Messiah's credentials include lineage from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. Some have speculated that he'll be Syrian because of Antiochus, but Antiochus was really Greek. Some have, have even suggested Italian. 
because of Aspasian and Titus, but Italian people don't make good antichrists. First of all, they hate to fight, and in, and in an Italian boot camp, you learn to give up in seven different languages. Ah, give up. You hungry? Hey, let's eat. Hey, there's no problem here. We're not told. In verse 12, it says that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth. That's the the contrast between the lie. The truth. The lie is that this Antichrist is the satisfying solution to the problems of humanity. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is the satisfying solution to the problems of humanity. But they will all be condemned. Look what it says. By the way, the word translated condemned in the Greek, it's krino. The word appears no less than 114 times in the Greek New Testament, 88 times. It's properly translated judge. In the old King James, the translators saw fit to use the word damned. That they all may be damned. And the old King James people didn't use the word in order to be abusive or to use cuss words because it's in the Bible and now I can say it. But it was a word that in classic Greek meant to separate and then to pick out and then to choose. And then later it came to mean to determine or to resolve or to decree. And then later it came to mean to pronounce an opinion concerning right and wrong. Hence, it meant to stand before the judgment seat and issued a verdict of guilty. And then the sentence is passed. That's why it says that. Because the verdict is given and the judgment is rendered that they all, that they all, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. What? The truth about Jesus. They embraced the lie about the Antichrist. And they rejected the truth about Jesus. But look what it says. But they had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the person who says, I don't care what the Bible says, and I don't care what Jesus says, and I don't care what you say, and I don't care what the church says, and I don't care what the History Channel says, and I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. I don't care about anything, and I don't care about anyone. Here's what I care about. What makes me happy. What gives me pleasure. What constitutes joy for me? Thomas Akempis wrote, Truly, when the day of judgment comes, we shall not be examined as to what we have read, but by what we have done. Not how well we have spoken, but how well we have lived. So who will be condemned? Those who don't believe the truth. Those who have pleasure in unrighteousness. Who will be condemned? 
Those who hear the gospel, who deny the gospel of grace, who choose rather to indulge themselves. There are people who do not even believe for a moment that God will judge the wicked and unrighteous. I found this on Craigslist. Quote, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. Matthew 24, 36. Do you wonder what is going to happen to your pets when Jesus descends from heaven to reunite the church with the father, taking all the Christians dead and alive up to heaven? Will your pets be left behind with no one to care for them? Have no fear. We at post rapture pet care are confirmed atheists. And as such, we will be left behind when the time comes. Just because we're atheists doesn't mean that we don't really care about animals. We adore them. And we will look after your pet after you're gone. For a small donation of 69.99 pounds, by the way, it's about two and a half, maybe three to one. So if that means it's 70, three times seven is about 210. So between $180 or so, for $180, these confirmed atheists promise to take care of your pet. Listen to this. They will be well fed and they will be taken care of long after your family has been taken up. We have representatives in the southeast of England and also in the northeast of Scotland. So we can accommodate for most areas of the country. Giving you peace of mind wherever you are. And I'm reading this and this is not, I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. We feel very strongly about pet care and want to offer the best possible service to British pet owners. Now, I don't know what's more blasphemous. That Christians will actually call the number and go, okay, I'd like to leave a redeposit for you for my Yorkie. Or that they would actually accept the money. That Christians would actually do this. Because if the biggest concern in your heart is what will God do with my pets when I'm gone? Then you've missed the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to provoke you to know and love and serve and obey and honor God. And the point of the passage is, if you're not doing that, to flee from the wrath to come into the arms of Jesus so that you can be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that there are so many people with so many clever and kooky things to say about these things. Lord, I admit that I don't know everything about everything, but I do know the one thing is true. That Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to return in glory and majesty. And that at the brightness of his appearing. His simple presence will be enough to consume the wickedness of the man Who's completely energized by Satan. 
Heavenly Father, we know that you are holy and we know that Jesus is holy. And Lord, we know that we have been made holy because our love for and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, I pray. I pray, I pray. That Lord, it would be our deep desire to honor you. To love you and to know you. Lord, I pray that as we read these interesting things and as we consider the times in which we're living. That perhaps, Lord, we would be the generation. That gets to confess, behold. My beloved comes. And that we can, like John, the apostle wrote so long ago, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.